Well, if you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me to Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40, the first book of the Bible, about four-fifths the way through that book. Now, for those of you older than 30 years old, older than 30, I have a small exercise for you to get us started this morning. I want you to think of your life from ages 17 to 30. For some of you, that wasn't that long ago. For some of you, well, you might need your spouse to help you think about that a little bit. But, but from age 17 to 30, what were you doing? How was it going? What headline would you put over your life in the span of those 13 years? For some, those were some of the most exciting, the most promising, the most potential of all the years. And some of that potential may or may not have panned out like you had hoped. And for others, you might look back on those years with regret. You think of them as years squandered with stupid decisions and sin or apathy. They're years wasted. And for others, you recall your late teens and 20s, and you think of a season of suffering, maybe suffering at the hands of others, maybe suffering due to health problems or loss of a loved one. You think of those years as what might have been if not. What headline would you place over those years in your life well, we'll put that exercise on hold just for now, and let's think about Joseph. Joseph, here at the end of Genesis, this figure, what headline would we want to put to his life, age 17 to 30? That's what's covered in Genesis 37 to 41. So you remember back in chapter 37 there, Joseph was rejected by his brothers, betrayed, sold into slavery in Egypt. Dad and mom presumed him dead. And you'll remember from chapter 39, which Chase walked us through last week, that that first half of that chapter looked promising for Joseph. There was upward momentum, progress, even while in Egypt. But then he was wrongfully accused of sexual assault and thrown back into prison. And he remained in prison for another 13 years. What headline do we put over that? What word or phrase would we put to that? And really I think we need to imagine two newspapers with two very different headlines. Imagine on the one hand, you have the earthly herald. On the other hand, you have the heavenly gazette. And the earthly herald, when it writes the story of Joseph, at this point in the story, they, let's just imagine, they went with the headline, 13 years a slave, colon, Joseph still on hold. Well, that's true. But the heavenly gazette 
borrows the language from the end of chapter 39. And this is their headline. God with him and for him. It doesn't look like it, but the narrator of Genesis tells us that that's what was going on. That's the heavenly headline. Well, our passage for today, Genesis 40 and 41, uh, is what we'll be studying. And I'll just start by reading the 40th chapter alone for now. Let's look in our Bibles. Genesis 40. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, We have had dreams, and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention to me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. In the uppermost basket, were, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Well, I have three headings for our study of these two chapters, Genesis 40 and 41. 
each heading really will get to the outcome of that section. It, it'll really tell us where the story, at least in that part, lands. And so you'll have to bear with me this morning as I announce to you a heading which gives away the conclusion of that section, and then we'll have to back up and see how it gets there. So here's the first heading, the first conclusion. The forgotten prisoner. Joseph here is a forgotten prisoner, especially at the end of chapter 40. But how does it get there? Well, we're introduced to a cupbearer and a baker, fellow prisoners with Joseph. You have to understand that a cupbearer in these days, a cupbearer to the king, is not just a guy who fetches Diet Cokes for him when he needs them. It's not just a, um, a sommelier, as they say in the fancy restaurants, a wine expert. No, the cupbearer was one of the most trusted positions in the kingdom, since he would taste everything before it reached the king's lips in hopes of thwarting any attempts of taking the king's life by way of poisoning. And then being around the king with that proximity, that, that much in time, well, he was a trusted advisor and confidant to the king. So we don't know exactly what happened with this particular cupbearer and baker. Perhaps Pharaoh's cupbearer overlooked poison food, perhaps put there by the chief baker. We don't know. Regardless, they both did something bad and were thrown into prison. And then one night, they each had a dream. Joseph steps in. He sees that they were troubled. He asks, why are they downcast? And they said, we have had dreams, but there is no one to interpret them. Verse 8, before prison, they would have had access to magicians, wise men, interpreters of dreams. We'll come back to them in chapter 41. But Joseph said to them, verse 8, I love this, do not interpretations belong to God? Already here, we're getting some evidence of Joseph's maturation, we could say, since we first were introduced to him when he was age 17. Back in chapter 37, Joseph would tell his brothers, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Doesn't quite have the God-centered ring to it that we read of here. Chapter 40, verse 8, do not interpretations belong to God? And he's saying that boldly to polytheist pagans. We'll see more of his God talk in the next chapter. As for the cupbearer's dream, he dreams of three branches of grapes and Pharaoh's cup in his hand, and the grapes are pressed into the cup, and the cup is placed into Pharaoh's hand. What's the interpretation? Joseph says, in three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your former position. Did you catch that he adds the request, verse 14 and 15? Only remember me. Mention me to Pharaoh. Please get me out of this place. Verse 15, I've done nothing that they should put me into the pit. The pit, not where the Lobos play basketball. 
the pit. Just like was talked about back in chapter 37 when his brothers threw him into a literal pit. But here now, he's using pit language of prison so that we would make the connection, so that we would tie it all together. Pit will be used again of this prison in the next chapter. We'll see that. And did you catch what Dave read for us earlier in Psalm 40, where David once spoke of being rescued out of the pit? We'll just tuck all that away for now. We'll come back to it. The baker is understandably encouraged by this favorable interpretation of the cupbearer's dream. And so he tells his dream to Joseph. Three baskets on his head and birds coming and eating from the baskets. The interpretation, though, is not favorable. In three days, Pharaoh will hang you and birds will come and eat the flesh off of your body. And this is exactly what happened. The outcome was just as Joseph said, but not as he hoped. The cupbearer was restored. The baker was hanged. And as for Joseph, he was forgotten. The cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. And chapter 41, verse 1, picks up the story two years later. So Joseph was in prison for two whole years more at this point. Of course, Joseph at that point, that day when the cupbearer exited the prison, he didn't know it would be two more years in prison. He doesn't know that the cupbearer won't help him out. So you can imagine the anticipation. Day one of the cupbearer being free Joseph would be listening for footsteps. Every clinging of the prison keys, he'd think, is this it? Are they coming for me? And then the next day, and then the next day, and then the next day, for two years. So this is Joseph, forgotten prisoner. Forgotten by the cupbearer, but not forgotten by God. What was said of Joseph while in prison back in chapter 39 is still true, even though it's not said here. The Lord was with him. It may not seem like it. It may not feel like it. It may have eventually seemed hopeless, helpless, Impossible to get out under these circumstances once that window was missed. But God was about to drastically change things. So now secondly, we see Joseph, exalted prince. He goes from forgotten prisoner to exalted prince. At least that's where this next section lands. How does it get there? Well, look down on your Bibles to chapter 41, and I'll start by just reading the first 16 verses of this long chapter. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. 
And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today. When Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, we dreamed on the same night, he and I, each having a dream with its own interpretation. A young Hebrew was there with us, a servant of the captain of the guard. We, when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dream. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office, and the baker was hanged. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And they quickly brought him out of the pit. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Dreams are crazy things, aren't they? I mean, you don't have to be Pharaoh, and you don't have to have a divinely originating dream like Pharaoh did to know that dreams are weird. Things don't make sense. Things don't seem to connect. Dreams don't follow the rules of, of physics or common sense. We've all been there. But let's not presume to relate to Pharaoh too much. In other words, we have to distinguish between divinely sent message dreams, as we see in a few pockets or eras of the Bible, like in Genesis and in Daniel and a little bit more in Acts. We have to distinguish between divinely sent message dreams and your dreams and my dreams we dreamt last night, which may come from suppressed fears or from late night pizza. <laughs> now, I know I made this point a few weeks ago when we were in chapter 37, but I need to make it again in case anyone wasn't there and anyone would take this portion of Genesis as normative and prescriptive for how we Christians should think of dreams. Not all dreams are from God, like they are messages, as they are here in Genesis. God can communicate that way. God has communicated that way before, but it seems that he needed to do that more before there was a closed canon of the Bible with 66 books in it than he does today. 
So if we Christians today want to know what God's will for our life is, the Bible tells us, and we don't need tomorrow's dreams to tell us. Some Christians treat dreams like that's where you really get the the real special sauce of information. It's almost Gnostic, like it's hidden knowledge. The Bible, okay, yeah, that's a given. But tell me your dreams. Let's get on to the nitty-gritty with that, they say. This is the nitty-gritty for us. But back to Pharaoh's dreams, which were divinely given dreams with a meaning, a purpose, a message. He has two dreams. They're similar but different. Seven fat cows were eaten up by seven emaciated cows. And then seven plump ears of grain were swallowed up by seven wimpy ears of grain. What could that mean? That that sounds unnatural. That sounds ominous. It sounds bad. The interpretation is lacking in Pharaoh's house. He called for all the magicians of Egypt. Don't think guys in tuxedos pulling rabbits out of hats. Magicians, think the wise men of the day. Think book of Daniel, which has so many similarities to our passage here in Genesis. If you think of those philosopher, instructor, astrologer kind of guys who would have spiritual insight And really, we would say, as Christians, demonic insight into another realm. Pharaoh calls for all of them he can muster, all that he can find, and none were able to interpret the dreams for Pharaoh. And it's then that Joseph is finally remembered. The cupbearer now remembers that there was this guy in prison who was batting a thousand one day in interpreting at least a couple of dreams. He tells Pharaoh about this Hebrew and without delay. Verse 14, Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the what? The pit. Not the prison. Again, the pit. There's that pit language again in case we missed it in the last chapter. What does this mean? What's it signify? Well, as I said already, it connects the imprisonment back to the brothers' treachery in chapter 37 when they threw him into a literal pit, but it also sets up a paradigm for the rest of the Bible. Like David in Psalm 40 saying, he drew me up from the pit of destruction. The pit then becomes the language of death in the Bible. And being rescued from the pit means not only protection or divine help or rescue, but resurrection. Resurrection. In other words, Joseph is about to have a resurrection-like experience as he's brought from pit to palace. If you say, oh, I don't know about this resurrection connection, that seems iffy. Well, okay, a new book just came out. I'm reading it right now. Jeffrey Pulse is the author, and it's called Figuring Resurrection, 
Joseph as a death and resurrection figure. It's an academic book, but if you really want to dig deep on that topic, there you go. You can read on your own. Pharaoh explains to Joseph his dream predicament. I've heard it said that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Verse 16, notice again the God language. Joseph answered, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Man, what a godly example Joseph is here. He is humble. He's not vindictive. I would be. I think I would have said, I'd be glad to help you out, Pharaoh, but uh, can I have a word with your cupbearer first? I would ask if that Potiphar guy is still around because I've got some words for him. I would have brought up to Pharaoh that I've been wrongfully imprisoned these many years. There's some sort of compensation for that? He doesn't do any of that. He's not even willing to take credit for his interpretive abilities. It's God who does this. It's not in me. He's quick to speak of his God. God singular. Again, to a polytheist, pagan, Pharaoh. The ruler of the world in these days. What boldness. He offers this interpretation. You see verse 25, read on with me. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. They mean the same thing. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. That's what they're about. God's about to do something. And then skip to verse 29. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt. But after then, there will arise seven years of famine. And all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land. And the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. This is certain, and it's bad. Famine is bad. I mean, we freaked out during COVID because we ran out of toilet paper. We don't know famine. Some of us are in poverty enough that you choose meals. That's bad. That's hard. But it's still not a famine over the land. This is a famine over the land for seven years. But Joseph has a plan. His plan, verse 33 to 36, you can read that on your own later. His plan is during the seven years of plenty, save, save, save. Put away 20% of all the grain. So that in the seven years of famine that follow, we got something. We got something to eat. Look down, we'll read on another paragraph starting in verse 37. This proposal... This proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? 
And Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand, and clothed him in garments of fine linen, and put a gold chain about his neck. And he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee. Thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without your consent, no one shall lift up hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zephaneth-Paniah, and he gave him in marriage Aseneth, the daughter of Potipharah, priest of On. So Joseph went out over the land of Egypt. Joseph is now exalted prince of Egypt. In a single day, he went from prisoner to prince. A new position. He's given Pharaoh's signet ring, which is essentially Pharaoh's signature to, to put on any wax seal approving things. Garments of fine linen and gold. Crowds bow before him as his chariot comes through. Remember, Joseph dreamed back in chapter 37 that one day his brothers would bow before him, but also the moon and stars would bow before him. Well, the brothers haven't bowed before him yet. I wonder if they will. Well, the Egyptians lead the way. He's given a new name in verse 45. We're not sure what it means in Egyptian, but it is an Egyptian name. And he's given a wife, an Egyptian wife. Now, before we get too concerned about that, and understandably so, since marrying foreign wives in the book of Genesis earlier, well, that didn't go so well, did it? Joseph was probably not given an option for these sorts of things, like his name and his wife. I mean, he is, after all, though prince of Egypt, he is Pharaoh's prince. He is Pharaoh's prime minister. He is still a servant. And what is more telling than his new name or wife is what he names his two new sons. Look down to verse 51. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For, he said, God has made me forget all my hardships and all my father's house. And really, it's not and all my father's house, but it's with my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Hebrew names. One to symbolize forgetting the hardships back home, and another to symbolize fruitfulness in a foreign land. 
We read on and we find that all that Joseph said would happen did happen. And all that Joseph planned worked. And then some. And so now a third heading. Savior of the world. Savior of the world. Savior of the world? Ryan, isn't that a bit over the top for Joseph? Don't we want to leave that for someone else later in the Bible? Well, let's read some more and see. Hold on to your butts. Look at verse 53. (laughs) Then seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end in the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. There was a famine in all lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land... Joseph opened up all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. Joseph here is a Savior of the world. No, he's not the Savior of the world, as in the only one or the final one. That Savior of the world, the Savior of the world, yes, comes later in the story. But Joseph typifies and foreshadows that Savior of the world that is to come. I'll come back to that. That he fulfills that, that he, sorry, that he foreshadows that. Let me first tell you a little bit about how this moment fulfills what has already taken place and been promised earlier in Genesis. Not only the dreams of greatness that are beginning to be fulfilled, but but you remember from our study of Genesis, the Abrahamic covenant? It hasn't been mentioned in quite a while, but it's still relevant. It's still being played out. In fact, it's advancing quite significantly. That Abrahamic covenant mentioned in chapter 12 and 15 and 17 and 22 and others had several components to it, but one of those components was this, that in Abraham's offspring, all the nations would be blessed. That's 22 Verse 18 of Genesis. That's exactly what we see here in our passage. The global language of verse 57 is unmistakable and repeated. All the earth, all the earth. It might be slightly hyperbolic. It's likely not a global famine. But as neighboring non-Egyptian Non-Egyptians come to Egypt, come to Joseph for food. Global language is used by Moses, the author here, to jog our memories about the Abrahamic covenant. And he's using other motifs as well to jog our memory about the Abrahamic covenant, like grain that can't be counted, like the sands of the sea. Abrahamic covenant is actually progressing. It's actually happening here in Joseph, 
in Egypt. Joseph is beginning to do and to see what his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather were told. We also see that in and through this thing, this event of Joseph in Egypt, the Abrahamic line would be preserved amidst a life-threatening famine that threatened to take the whole thing out. Joseph will later say to his brothers in chapter 45, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant for the earth. He's the preserver of the line. And what an encouragement this would be, especially to that first audience hearing these words written down by Moses. That first audience, we always got to ask that. Who's the first audience of this thing that's been written in the Bible? And the first audience was likely the Israelites in the wilderness, probably on the precipice of the promised land, that's daunting, and the precipice of Moses' death. That's curious and difficult and You can imagine for them especially that the Joseph story would highlight this biblical principle that's found everywhere in the Bible. That suffering goes first, then glory. It's not glory, then suffering. It's suffering, then glory. The Joseph story is all about suffering, then glory. The Joseph story is all about God's sovereignty over all world affairs and leaders and events. God is God, not Pharaoh. God is God, not famine. He's using all these things for his glory and for his people's good, even when they can't see it. And even when the timeline seems delayed, and if you know the story of the book of Exodus, you know how much those truths would be needed for those people and for us people. We need this today, don't we? Our times seem chaotic, uncertain, just plain strange. Our lives often feel backwards, wrong, not the way it was supposed to go, or even just on hold, floundering, stuck. Our culture seems to get darker and darker all the time. And whatever you think the biggest problem out there is right now, Climate change, the economy, gender confusion, Biden, Trump, your job, your marriage, your wayward kids, whatever the biggest problem is in your estimation, it is no problem for God. It doesn't mean it's not bad, it doesn't mean it's not hard. But it is no problem for God. He's not surprised by it. He's not intimidated by it. He's in control. And not just over something, somewhere, with some people, in certain stories, but all of it. He's wise. So things are not chaotic and purposeless and meaningless. And he's good. 
So even hard things have bigger purposes for our good. Our God is doing a thousand things at once, a million things at once, countless things at once. And sometimes we go a ways in our life, enough to be able to look back and connect a couple of dots. Oh, that's why that thing happened, which was hard, so that this thing would happen, which is good. Oh, I, I see now that having this health problem these many years really humbled me. Joseph could look back and wonder, wait, wait, if I hadn't been in prison, I wouldn't have met the cupbearer. If I hadn't been left in prison those two years, where would I have gone? And would I be around when Pharaoh dreamed his dreams that night? Sometimes we get to look back and connect a dot or two. But even when we can't connect dots, we have God's word telling us the most important headlines. They're old headlines, but they haven't expired. They're still true. They're still relevant. And we go about life with the earthly herald in front of our eyes, and it's the only paper we pick up. We think it's just hard. We must be forgotten. But there is a heavenly gazette available to us in God's word telling us what he's up to. Not what he'll do next. Not how long it'll be. But what he's up to. So the Joseph story gives fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. It gives encouragement to them and to us. And it also foreshadows. It foreshadows God blessing the nations through one man's suffering and exaltation is what ties Joseph and Jesus together, among other things. Joseph foreshadows a great ruler to come, a great provider who did come, a great savior who is Jesus. Just as God fed and satisfied and sustained all who would come to Joseph, so all the more now God feeds and satisfies and gives life to all who come to Jesus and bow before him. Jesus said in John 6, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Like Joseph, Jesus offers bread to all who come and all who are hungry and needy. But unlike Joseph, Jesus offers spiritual bread, which fully saves and forever satisfies. Like Joseph, the provision of our salvation comes through a path of suffering, a suffering servant. But unlike Joseph, Jesus' path involved a literal death and a literal resurrection. 
Philippians 2 tells us that Jesus took the form of a servant in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Would you today come to Jesus for this living bread, true salvation? Would you come to this Jesus who is king and bow before him? We pray that you would. And brothers and sisters here, Christians, let us keep coming to him. Let us keep bowing before him. Let us keep trusting him. Let us keep feeding on him. Let us keep being satisfied by him. To that end, he has given us each other. He has given us his word. And he has given us a meal. The Lord's Supper, we call it. And we'll partake of that today. The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, Paul records. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We take of the bread as Christians to remember the Lord's death. Not that we forgot that he did die, but we forget what it means, how significant it is, how much we need it. We forget our need. And so he's given us this meal as often as we do it. We do it monthly as a church. But as often as we do it, we do it to remember his death, to ponder his death, to, to remember our experience of coming to him for salvation and taking up, like taking up bread and wine. The bread and the wine symbolize his life and his death. We will tear from the bread to remind ourselves that his body was torn for us. And we will look at the red in the cup to remind ourselves that his blood was spilled for us. And in these, not in the bread or the cup, but in what they represent, in the body and blood of Jesus, there is our salvation and our satisfaction. This is a meal for those who are in covenant relationship with Jesus already. It's for those who trust that what Jesus did on that cross and in his resurrection was actually for them. They know that. So if that's you here today, we welcome you to partake of this meal with us, even if you're not a member of this church. But if you're not yet a Christian, we'd ask that you not partake of this meal with us. Because it's for those who already know this is true of them and true for what God has already done on their behalf. So in just a bit, as others get up and go to a table, you'll see that happen. You, if you're not a Christian, feel free, please, we'd encourage you, just stay seated and listen and watch. And perhaps in due course, God would have you sharing with the same table as us. In just a minute, Drew's going to lead us in a song or two, and while we're singing, we will 
come to one of the tables. There are seven tables in this room. There are three up front. There are four in the back. Just go to whichever one is closest to you. At the table, you'll find um, a cup of bread, and you'll want to take that bread right there at the table. But if you would, take the cup back with you to your seat and don't partake of it just yet. We'll wait till we all have it, and then I'll come up and lead us in us sharing that cup together when we're done singing. Well, let me pray for us. Lord, we ask for your help to take this meal with joy and thanksgiving and humility and remembrance. We thank you for what it represents. We thank you for all that you did, Lord Jesus. For us, we don't deserve it. And so we come with empty hands again. We come to you asking you to fill us. As we take a a moment now to just quietly on our own talk to you about our sin and your salvation, to just rehearse the gospel to you for our own good, Lord, would you work among us? We pray in Jesus' name.